Hello, this is Richard Joy, Executive Director of ULI Toronto, and welcome to our special podcast series, In Case You Missed It. In this season, we delve deep into the ULI Toronto archives to present past speakers of our signature annual fireside chats, featuring key industry leaders and city builders from our region, their perspectives on the past and the future from the time we recorded, and their sage advice for emerging industry leaders. That these interviews were recorded as much as a decade ago adds a special dimension to these podcasts. They are already time capsules of a different era. In this episode, we feature incoming CEO of Waterfront Toronto at that time, 2016, William Flissegg, and an interview with noted international city builder from Toronto, Ken Greenberg. We hope you enjoy this. My name is Richard Joy and I'm the Executive Director of uh, ULI Toronto and on behalf of our Management Committee and our Advisory Board, it is, I would like to thank you all for attending tonight's Fireside Chat event. Most of you will know that ULI, the Urban Land Institute's global mission is to advance the responsible use of land. Of particular interest to ULI Toronto though are the synergies between public and private land uses and so it is with added interest that we present tonight's program Waterfront Toronto's new president and CEO, William Fleesegg, in conversation with Ken Greenberg. Before we begin, I'd like to recognize our event sponsors. There are many. Um, and they are Bennett Jones, Bousfields, KPMB Architects, Ledcor Group, Pinnacle International, TD Commercial Banking, and our reception sponsors, Baker Real Estate and Menkes. So thank you very much to our sponsors. A quick note to say that our, uh, this year is our first to make our reception a members-only event. It reflects the near doubling of our membership over the past two years, now over 1,250 strong. As we grow, so will our value to our members, and you can expect more such events in the future. This is ULI Toronto's eighth annual Fireside Chat program. Past evenings have included conversations with such industry leaders as Ed Sonshine, Peter Sharp, the Menkes family, and Mayor Hazel McCallion, to name a few. It's a distinguished list. Veterans of past years will know that the cornerstones of these events has been a retrospective on the life and career of our guests. In many ways, they've been a celebration of legacy. But last year, we changed our focus somewhat. Our emphasis shifted more to the future playing host to one of Mayor John Tory's very first city building focused events following his election. It was not surprising that last year's fireside chat was a, as much about Mayor Tory's vision as it was about his past career. By inviting Will Fleesegg to, to be this year's fireside chat guest, we are continuing in the vein of this new tradition. Of course, we are interested in knowing uh, about the professional experiences that have led, to Will, uh, to, led Will to this new chapter in his career, but perhaps we are even more interested and curious about how his past experiences uh, inform his emerging vision for our waterfront. By way of introductions, I'm going to keep both of these quite brief, as our interviewee will have an opportunity to expand on his past experiences shortly, and our interviewer is well known to most of us in the room. That said, some brief highlights of Will's career include 
Most recently, the president of Communitas Development, a real estate development and advisory company in San Francisco that leads and advises on community-oriented urban developments. He has overseen multiple award-winning mixed-use large-scale urban projects in this capacity. He's also the past director of planning and development for the city of Boulder, Colorado, and director of downtown planning and development in Denver, where he led the city's efforts to revitalize several historic areas of the city. Previously, Will directed the planning of many prominent transit-oriented development projects, including Boston's North Station Development Plan, Kendall Square Cambridge Center Master Development Plan, and Denver's Union Station Master Development Plan, which I've seen fantastic. Uh, and he's a licensed architect in the state of California, and I've chopped a lot, so more to be expanded on. Ken Greenberg is an urban designer, teacher, writer, and former director of urban design and architecture for the city of Toronto. He's the founding partner of Urban Strategies, Inc., and now principal of Greenberg Consultants. For over three decades, he has played a pivotal role uh, on, the, on public and private assignments in urban settings throughout North America and Europe, focusing on the rejuvenization of downtowns, waterfronts, neighborhoods and campus master planning, regional growth management, and new community planning. He is the recipient of the 2010 American Institute of Architects Thomas Jefferson Award for Public Design Excellence and the 2014 Sustainable Buildings Canada Lifetime Achievement Award. He currently teaches at the University of Toronto where he is an adjunct professor in the John H. Daniels Faculty of Architect Architecture, Landscape and Design. He is also a co-founder and visiting scholar at the City Building Institute at Ryerson University and he is the author of Walking Home, The Life and Lessons of a City Builder, published by Random House. So an incredible panel that we have for you today. Before I turn over to Ken to begin uh, the interview, I want to make sure people are aware of our various hashtags. We've come accustomed to being excellent in social media, so we hope that tonight will be no exception. Um, I think we actually uh, have been able to make number one trending in Canada for one of our past events, so uh, the bar set pretty high. Um, so fire, ha hashtag fireside uh, TO uh, and questions uh, can be sent uh, to Toronto at ULI.org and we look forward to uh, receiving those questions that way and of course there'll be time, a uh, good uh, 20 minutes or more for questions uh, directly from the audience as well. So we've got uh, lots and lots to cover. A very exciting program as I said and I'm going to hand it over to you Ken. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Richard, and thank you to ULI for allowing me the distinct pleasure to uh, have this conversation with my dear friend and, and colleague, uh, Will Fleisig. Um, I'm not sure we're going to trend number one because I doubt we'll be that controversial, but we'll, we'll see what we can do. Um, I think you can tell by both the quantity and quality of the audience uh, who have come tonight to, uh, to hear about you, uh, that there is tremendous interest in this job that you've taken on. Tremendous interest in our waterfront, which is one of the most significant collective projects that we're all embarked on. And uh, people are really anxious to hear who you are and why you have uh, taken on this really important job at such a crucial time. Enough about me. Okay. Uh, can I just, I'm just curious, if you're in planning, can you just raise your hand if you're in public sector planning, consultancy, 
um, design architect, landscape architect, development, community, yeah, uh, investment, finance, uh, other, <laughs> yeah, okay. okay. Other. Ra Raptor player, right. okay, okay, great, thank you, I just. <laughs> so, an extremely diverse audience. Um, so, I think on behalf of everyone, I'd like to extend a warm Toronto welcome. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you for, for joining us. We're really glad you've chose us. And I want to take advantage of your new guy moment. Um, <laughs> this, when, when you come into a new situation for the first time, uh, very often those, those first impressions when you see things with, uh, with fresh eyes are very revealing. Uh, I sense that moment is quickly passing just judging by the pressures you're under and the number of people I, I saw you uh, on close terms with when we were out in the lobby. But let's see what we can do with that. But um, I first want to find out something about you and what drew you to this job. And I'm, for those of you who remember uh, Brian Linehan, where he would start off interview. And does anybody remember Brian Linehan? Okay, he, he was a famous interviewer in Canada, and he would start off by playing back this amazing, this is your life, uh, and people would always say, how did you know all that? Uh, but as Richard did part of this for me, um, just prior, you were the president of a development company. Um, you started off as an architect. You quickly realized what a mistake that was. Um, you then... Um, went over to the dark side and became a private sector developer, uh, as mentioned, where you directed a number of major projects in different cities. Uh, you then left that to go into uh, the public sector or at different times going back and forth, uh, becoming director of planning and development in Boulder, and then where we met in Denver, uh, where I was hired on a Mission Impossible to mess with the Lawrence Halpern Park, Skyline Park, uh, and so that, that was the beginning of a long relationship. So my, my first question to you, having, having done all that, is what drew you here to us? Did you have an early premonition about Donald Trump? Uh, <laughs> was, was it the high value of the Canadian dollar? Um, what was it, and I'm curious about this, was it something to do with our city? and the life that's possible in the city uh, with Wendy, your wife, and your two beautiful daughters. Was it the job? What was the combination of things that was appealing to you in taking on this job? I think, uh, Ken, that about 500 people have asked me that question. So yeah. I appreciate, I've had a lot of uh, well, ability to There's some to new ones who it. haven't yeah, heard the answer here. Um, you know, first I just want to thank Richard for the invite to come. and. This is my, in a way, my coming out party, if you will. And I, I love ULI. I've been a long, long time member. And uh, I really believe in what ULI is about. And I didn't tell Richard I was going to say this, but I, I, I love what happens at the district councils. To me, that's where the rubber meets the road and people really get involved in, in raising the bar about the, the discussion and the discourse. So I'm, I'm very happy that this can be my first time to, to talk to folks. So thank you for the invite. Um, as far as your joke about Trump, um, my daughter said to me, who's 13, uh, this was many months ago, this was in October, and I had had discussions with the board, but I had not yet passed immigration uh, that I knew that they would allow 
an American to become CEO of a major Canadian corporation. So I wasn't sure, and one day my daughter Arielle says, Daddy, if Donald Trump becomes president, we have to move to Canada. <laughs> and I was sure she'd been reading my emails and that she knew that there had been all these Canadian things back and forth. But actually, um, to really answer that question, I have to go back about five years. Um, uh, I had come back to Toronto in the early 90s uh, because we were looking for an architect, uh, my development company in Denver, uh, to find an architect to build a mixed-use contemporary building in a historic district in Lodo, lower downtown. And uh, uh, Bruce Kuhlbauer, Shirley Lumberg, KPMB were one of the finalists in that. And we came to Toronto and we interviewed them. And uh, Bruce and Shirley won the project. So I got to come back several times to, uh, to meet with the team and to talk about the project. So, uh, you know, when you meet someone like Bruce, it's, uh, you know, of course, you get the whole gestalt about what the city's doing and what's happening. And uh, it was an interesting introduction to have someone who, you know, is from here, knows it intimately, is very involved with the waterfront. Although, little did I realize, Bruce, that that would re result in my sitting in this chair 10 years or 15 years later. Um, but, you know, I grew up in the East Coast. I grew up in New York and in Boston. And... Uh, I, uh, you know, for me, I played hockey. You know, I was a hockey player. And uh, I thought I was pretty good until I got to college and half the team was Canadians and half the team was from the US. And all of a sudden I wasn't so good anymore. <laughs> um, but I, I really enjoyed the sport and enjoyed playing and got to know a lot of Canadian friends, some of whom were from Toronto. And I think the, the issue we all face in our career is, uh, you know, we want to keep learning. We want to keep trying new things. We want to still understand how do you do this? How do you make, you know, places, cities, uh, buildings, districts? Um, and frankly, for me personally, when I got a call from a headhunter and they send you the, you know, you get these calls from people saying, would you consider an opportunity? And you open the attachment and I read the mission statement for Waterfront Toronto. And I'm paraphrasing, but it was something to the effect of um, to revitalize the waterfront, to provide economic development, sustainability, and to change the perception of Torontonians, Ontarians, and Canadians about Toronto. And I said, who wrote this? I mean, who changes people's perceptions, much less who adopted it? I mean, that was, that's pretty wild. I said, I've never seen a mission statement that expanded the idea that if you transform a large chunk of the city, that could actually change people's notions about who they are and why they're there and how people perceive a place. So that was the first really hook uh, to that. And then the more I kept reading the vision, I mean, the hair in the back of my neck went up. I mean, it, the opportunity at the scale, what had been accomplished by John Campbell, my predecessor, and the team at Waterfront Toronto, working with the city and the province and obviously Ottawa, to, to begin to take what only, what, 20 years ago, Ken, mm -hmm. was a pretty morbid waterfront. Uh, lots of previous plans. I mean, it didn't take a lot of Googling to figure out that there were a lot of visions and a lot of plans and maybe not a whole lot to show for it. And uh, of course, I went back to you know, the late 1700s and early 1800s to see how this place had evolved. But there was something about that vision that I kept coming back to. 
that as I wondered whether this was something worth doing and worth changing my career path, the fact that you know, the, the previous mayor and the, the premier and prime minister uh, in tw 2002, I believe, maybe 2001, I don't remember, had come together mm -hmm. and linked arms and said, we need to make this happen on the waterfront. It's an incredibly important resource. And in order to do that, we need a new entity that you know, brings all three governments together. So to me, that was really pretty exciting, that in order to recognize that kind of vision, mm -hmm. you needed to do something different. So it's really interesting that you mentioned reading that in the RFP as the hook. Right. Because you and I and Wendy and Shirley were having a conversation the other night about trying to pin down what is Toronto about? What is the distinctive quality that defines us? And I, I think what we came to in that conversation is this sense of becoming, that rather than having a fixed identity, rather than being known for something that's already been done by others, there's this incredible ability to shape the future, changing perceptions, as, as you put it in that RFP, and I think you know a lot of people in this room are playing huge roles in that shaping. So I I want to ask you about you know I, the fact that you had had all these what one, one might consider different careers: public sector, private sector, in design, and so on. How do those various backgrounds, in terms of a kind of convergence of skills? play into what you're doing now, the way right. you see the role at Waterfront Toronto? What, what do you bring from those different periods in your life? You know, I'm, I'm sure each of you, when you think back on that first moment or first moments when you thought about, I want to become an architect or I want to be a planner or I want to be a designer or builder, whatever it was, that there was something that fascinated you about cities. There was something about being in a place, whether it was your own neighborhood or downtown or you were visiting with your family. I have a very distinct memory uh, at six years old being in Paris with my family. Both my parents are from Europe. My mother's from Krakow, Poland, and my father's from Austria, Austria-Hungary. And um, standing there and having this memory very distinct of, this is so different. This is so different than where I grew up. And I was really wondering, well, you know, how, why, who? And, and I think that kind of curiosity, although I in my career early on was a scientist and was doing oceanography, I, I found myself coming back to really enjoying being in, in cities and, and understanding what, what shapes these things. Mm -hmm. And that, um, I think at, then in university, um, even though I was a, a geologist and studying, I figured I should take art history, right? Be a well-rounded scientist, you, you take a, a general art history course. So, you know, you start with, um, you know, uh, Egypt, and then you get to Crete, and then, you know, we got to Greece. And they start showing the slides of, you know, these wonderful pieces of incredible civic design and architecture. And I remember feeling just frozen looking at those slides of those buildings in Greece. And, you know, it, this was in the, in the late 60s, early mm -hmm, 70s. Yeah. And there was a lot of turmoil in, in, in the United States because of Vietnam, and we were protesting, et cetera. I used to actually go get the, the marching permits for the SDS, um, and I'd come back in Philadelphia, and 
did you get the permit? You know, and I, I got the permit so we can yeah. march. You know, so I was interacting with the city, but um, you know, I saw those buildings and it was like frozen poetry. It was like, you know, whatever the embodiment of Greece is supposed to be, here are these buildings that were speaking to the notions of democracy and, and you know, the Senate and discourse and, you know, homage to the gods, whatever. And so for me, architecture became, you know, something that was like unlocking a whole new world, a new language, a new way of, mm -hmm. of, of, of being around cities. And I was lucky enough because at, uh, at Penn at the time, Louis Kahn was still teaching there. Um, there was uh, um, Ed Bacon. Ed Bacon was still sure. there. Um, uh, um, a couple of the other architects, Jurgola, Romaldo Jurgola right. was there, and also um, Brown uh, um, Venturi. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, Venturi was there. So what an incredible place to be! And Philadelphia is a wonderful city. And so I started sneaking up to Khan's, um, you know, studio, and and it was just again this unearthing, this opening up of a, a new way of being intrigued about, about places and cities and how do you do that? How, how do you actually create a city and you start to read yeah. about that? So I, I, took, I veered off from, from the science, but to me the idea that we could all come together and somehow share each other's notions about what Toronto you know, is and what it could be and will be and that collectively in this room, we could sit down and actually come up with what that should be and then actually see it happen. And if we could be meeting again in uh, you know, 20, 25 years, uh, every single one of you would be sitting here and we'd all be having a round table, not me talking. And we'd all look at each other and go, wow, remember that time when Will, you know, here it is 25 years later and look what happened. You know, so that, it's, that it's moment at Penn back yeah. in the 60s and 70s and then the connections with Harvard right. and CERT and the Urban Design Conference and at which Jane Jacobs yes, spoke. Yes, I, I got to meet and, and Matt, made Matt a, and a big splash. Right. Um, one could argue, although we don't think of it that way, that we are in a similar moment in Toronto right now of incredible reinvention, that in fact our city is a gigantic R&D lab for about what is a city in the 21st century and what does it mean to be in a city with a, a different set of conditions right. and a different set of players but equally interesting. So I, I want to go back to where I started which is this thing of first impressions. Yes. From afar we form hunches about what we think things are like and you know coming and meeting Bruce and Shirley and having that early interaction with Toronto I'm sure you form certain impressions and I know you did a lot of homework preparing for the job interviews but now that you're actually here are there things that are surprising you either good or bad or <laughs> somewhere in between what what are the right. things that are striking you that you didn't know before you got here right so imagine that you've been called by you know, uh, a group saying, we want you to come to a city you've never been to, or really know, I've been here a few times, and we want you to come and uh, we want you to tell us what you think about our city and what can happen. And, but you can't talk to anybody. It's all, you know, under the table, and what do you do? So here I was, 2,700 miles away in San Francisco, and, you know, I, I thought, well, I guess I could call you, and since we've known each other, yeah. and you know, um, I could call Dean Summer because I knew Dean Summer, and I could call, um, you know, Bruce and say, look, I can't talk to anybody, but how am I going to figure out 
what's going on and who's on first base? And um, I, uh, I, I, I had to rely that some people could keep their mouth shut and I could meet with them and say, what's going on? You know, but the best was, I don't know if Robert Friedman's here or not, but um, Robert's a colleague. He's right there, thank you. Hi, Robert. Um, Robert is someone I've known for many, many years and had been the head of urban design at the city. And so I said, Robert, this is Will Fleissing. Do you remember me? And he goes, of course I remember you, Will. And I said, listen, we never had this conversation, but can you take a few hours and hang out with me and tell me about the waterfront? So I guess now I can tell the truth that, you know, uh, you've been outed, Robert. So Robert and I went out and, and we started walking and talking and walking and talking and what's that and what's that and what's that? And then the best was, as Robert suggested, I got on a bicycle and I started going by myself down in the, in the summer down to the waterfront and going on Cherry Street and then going down to the beaches and then going all the way down to the Leslie Spit and, you know, just, wow, the Hearn. I mean, yeah. oh my God. I mean, the scale of the opportunity mm -hmm. and understanding, um, I'm right next to downtown. Mm -hmm. I'm, you know, barely eight minutes on my bike from downtown and this is Tabla Rosa. I mean, it's just fantastic. So I think that, and then also seeing what had actually happened. You go to the West Donlands, this was still Pan Am Village. Uh, I was here actually during the Pan Am Games, which was great. Uh, but to see how, you know, taking this leftover piece of land that, you know, they had to do for flood protection and creating this amazing urban place, this, this landscape mecca. And I remember walking up, leaving my bike and going up to the top and looking down and then seeing the Pan Am Village coming up and seeing what would become this, this new neighborhood and, and the care that had been taken with the scale and the detailing and, and the relationships and the mixed use. And I was just so taken by the quality and the thoughtfulness and, you know, it, it, you know scale is such a relative term, but you could tell that it had been done with real nuance mm -hmm. and real skill. And so that said, wow, look at that. And then Queen's Key was under construction. And I go up to one of the, the workmen, the stonecutter, and I walk up to him and I said, uh, you know, he's cutting, if you, you've all been down, and you know, they have this maple leaf pattern in, in the rubble, in the, in the, the, you know, the, the brick, not the brick, the stone. And the last little piece has an acute angle. What if any of you tried to cut stone at an acute angle, it's a bitch, you can't do it. And so what you want to do is just chamfer the corner, right? You don't want to make it, and I went up to the guy, took, was taking a break, and I said, uh, is, that, is that really hard? He goes, oh man, it's, he used a word I can't use. And um, <laughs> he, he, I said, but don't you want to just, they won't let me. I have to do this acute angle on that last block of that maple leaf pattern, because, you know, I said, that is amazing, I mean, who, both from a designer's perspective and then carrying it through on the implementation to insist that that last piece, so when you next go down there, look at that last little block because this is our front porch. This is the first thing that people, when they come to the city and they're going to CN or whatever, they're gonna come down to Queens Key and that's the front porch. And if you come to your front porch at your home and it's a little rickety and you know, things are kinda, you go, wow, you know, I wonder what it's like back there, you know, the first impression piece. So what you've created, what Waterfront Toronto in fact has accomplished, is to create this magnificent front porch that now sets the table for the next stage of what's gonna happen on North Keating 
and you know the, the East Bayside, and and then going out to the Portlands. So that idea that that kind of care and commitment, and now that I understand the design review panel and you know Chris Glazik, many of you know, I think Chris is here. Um, you know the way the design review board has worked with designers and applicants. I mean, very very you know terrific process. Obviously. We can always make things better, but as a process of making excellence. So these pockets of excellence. Um, it also, as I walked around downtown, I was surprised that I didn't see as much green as you experience when you go to Boston or New York or even Philadelphia. That obviously you have terrific parks. You have wonderful pocket parks. But as a, you know, as a place where you were looking for a little bit more canopy, and then I went out to the annex, and there are a couple of those great streets uh, where Shirley Bloomberg lives, and the great canopy. I'm going, what, so what's the deal with that? And I'm learning about the history about right-of-ways, and there was a lot of tussle about how wide the street should be and how costly it would be, and you know, well, why do we need a canopy that's gonna cost more money? And you know, so I believe, and I think the reason that I'm here is all of us now recognize that we have this opportunity for the rest of the waterfront and the rest of the Portlands, you know, huge to really create and define what is the 21st century Toronto? What is this next evolution of our place and our city? And frankly, the however many are here today, we're it. I mean, you know, this is the group that's gonna make that happen. And I'm so excited to be part of that and to help to do that. So, I mean, if you add all those things together that I'm giving you kind of snapshots, the last thing I will mention is, um, Everybody's so friendly, <laughs> and, you know. I mean, everyone's been so welcoming and open, and I mean, don't, you know. don't be deceived. Yeah, well, yeah. No, um, I'm, I'm, you know, I, uh, I I I found that people are, are intrigued. You know, they go, "Why would you leave San Francisco?" That's probably question three. But no, um, no, you know. I'm not asking. <laughs> um, it's you know, obvious. Why would you leave San Francisco to come, you know, to Toronto? And I, but I have found that people are really. Uh, open to trying some new things, looking at some new approaches, maybe saying that some of the things we've done in Toronto, as good as they are, we're ready for the next stage. That now Toronto's in this elite category uh, where, you know, number one in North American sustainability, number one livability, number one diversity, number eight is a financial, uh, you know, worldwide, um, you know, just absolutely in the first rank uh, of world cities being spoken about with London, New York, Shanghai, Hong Kong, Paris, that what does that mean for each of us? And how do we start to define that opportunity? Um, and I think there's great, great opportunity to, to do that. So you, you picked up on a couple of really interesting things among many in what you just said when you were talking about the trees. Um, what We were a city I have to say, for much of our history of very low expectations in terms of the public realm, which we like to talk about now. So we did not, unlike many cities on the continent, we didn't plant street trees in the right-of-way. So why the neighborhoods have those wonderful trees is they're in people's front yards. We have very few streets with robust tree planting in a way that is sustainable on the streets. We just didn't do that. We were very, uh, you know, I guess the nicest word I can use is parsimonious. We were <laughs> careful with our expenditures. And, and going to your discovery on the waterfront, 
I have to say, your predecessor, John Campbell, and the team that he assembled, and Chris, who's here somewhere, and Andrew Hilton, who I'm looking at, the director of communications, and a bunch of other people who are in the audience, um, are part of an amazing team that, is, that you've inherited, uh, which is trying to change very significantly the level of care and quality that we put into the public realm. So Queen's Key, the series of waterfront parks that we've developed, um, guiding all of that and sort of raising the bar is incredibly important. But what's really interesting is Canadians are by nature, and I can say this as a, as a dual citizen, I, I'm schizophrenic, I've already been here long enough so I've inherited some of this, we're very modest. We do not trumpet our successes. And you know, coming as an outsider, I think what you're seeing is that the transformation of the Toronto waterfront is one of the most extraordinary things going on in the world of design and development to be found anywhere on the planet today. And so getting Torontonians to actually embrace that, I think is part of the job. And, and to see it for what it is, is part of the job that, that you've inherited. Um, but let me switch to something else. Um, you mentioned that moment when Waterfront Toronto was formed, when we had Jean Chrétien, Mike Harris, and Mel Lassman, the famous- The Three Amigos. The Three Amigos <laughs> shot where they stood down on the waterfront and um, in chasing um, an Olympic bid that we didn't get, they formed Waterfront Toronto. They each put some money in the kitty. Uh, we created the initial $1.5 billion war chest uh, but for that, we would not have Waterfront Toronto. Right. And Waterfront Toronto somehow, despite the best efforts of the Ford brothers, um, actually has survived, is doing well. Um, and you know, I think you've inherited something that is really in good shape. But talk candidly, if you will, about having the three masters that you've mentioned. About how, how do you get the three to march? And I think you're already learning enough about that to sense some of the, it, it's probably both a strength and a weakness to have those three parties at the table. Right. But how, how does that play out? What's your sense of that? So I, I just wanted to follow up on a comment about the design excellence and you know how that's happening. I wanna actually, the, the developers that I've met so far have, uh, I've been, it's just remarkable, their understanding that the value of the public realm and the value of uh, of, of that public identity and how people will, I mean, there are a lot of buildings, but in a sense, how, how the public realm where people are really coming together is so valuable uh, to the future of, of the district and identity and therefore the value of the, of the investment. And so I think the, the development community here, I think is very sophisticated, totally gets the, 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 the proposition of the public realm, the sustainability, how those pieces come together. Um, so I, I feel that we're blessed both with a, uh, a very deep and, and talented design community. We have you know, the policy makers in the city uh, in terms of setting up you know, where do we wanna be going as a vision, as a sustainable place for the GTA, and then the development community bring the investment dollars. It's all that together that's gonna make this happen. Um, I think you know, the notion of an entity that has three shareholders, basically. Uh, if you don't know, the board consists of 
uh, for appointees from the city, the province, and, and from Ottawa. And, and what was wonderful during the interview process, I got to meet all the board members, was that when they came together as Waterfront Toronto, they were not representing you know, the premier's agenda or the mayor's agenda or the prime minister's agenda at that time. It, it was really, they were there for the waterfront. And I was really impressed by that. A very diverse group of people, uh, Sheldon Levy and um, uh, you know, uh, obviously Mark Wilson, the chair, uh, Ross McGregor, et cetera, uh, Gary uh, uh, Wright, who's the former chief planner of the city. So great you know, board uh, to, to work with. Um, and so I, I realized that both having a clear vision, a high-functioning, committed, engaged, professional staff, and then having a board that was really rallying around that that were the key ingredients, and that our job was going to be to, in a sense, say, look what we've done to date, look what's been accomplished, that the premise of creating a new entity, in fact, had been delivered between the development that had occurred, the Queen's Key, the West Donlands, the public realm. Um, so there's credibility there. But now we're looking at 2.0. We're looking at the next piece of that. Our job is to, is to really take what we've done and reframe it. Because you know, people are saying, well, that's great. Well, you know, that's what was done during the first 10, 12 years. Great leadership by John Campbell. But now what? You know, 12 years is a long time, and we have new people in all three governments. We have a new mayor, we have a new planning director, we have you know, new, new people at the province. And so they're kind of saying, so why Waterfront Toronto? What, what's the value proposition? Um, because, you know, frankly, the city knows how to plan and knows urban design. Um, you know, Infrastructure Ontario, IO, knows, does real estate, does infrastructure. And you know, the federal government does P3s. So what is it about Waterfront Toronto that you need in order to actually address the issues of the day. So I'm asking myself and I'm asking our, our, my colleagues that question and what I'm starting to think about, and this is, I'm throwing it out there for further discussion, is you know, we talk about the roads and the bridges and the parks and the buildings and you know, the innovation centers and, and you know, the digital infrastructure, but what does that get us? What are we trying to achieve? And I think all of us should be rethinking what we're doing in the post-Paris world, the COP21, what happened just weeks ago, that the urgency, the timing, can that we all are doing good work. We're all trying to do, you know, lead silver, gold, platinum. We're all trying to advance that. that that's not going to do it. You know, if we're trying to get to 80% GHG reduction by 2050, we've got to up the ante and I've tasked Lisa Prime in our, in our office, our sustainability officer, and said, okay, if we work backwards from 2050 for an 80% reduction, what does that mean in terms of mobility, uh, the green canopy, uh, electricity, water, waste, all of those systems, where do we have to be? What's the trajectory? But at the same time, we have to do some demonstrations. We have to show people what is a climate positive design, a climate positive development? What is going to actually reduce the greenhouse footprint, the carbon footprint, um, and provide the jobs and the innovation that Canada needs to produce 
and how do we export that technology, support those services. And so I'm committed to both, that we need to figure out a trajectory for what the waterfront can be and where we need to go, but we also need to show people now what that means. And we're about to put out an RFQ for four and a half acres on uh, Keyside, a property that we, we, we own, and to ask that question, what is this 21st century neighborhood building, building technologies? How do we broaden the partnerships to bring in nonprofits, uh, to bring in industry construction folks, to bring in the wood, the concrete, the steel people, bring in the pension funds, bring practitioners to the table? How do we expand the conversation? Because in order to do what, what I think we all have to do, we have to change how we do our conversations and what we're trying to do. And it's going to take every single person in this room and everybody you know in our industry to achieve what Canada needs to do. And it's going to happen in the waterfront. That's the place downtown is going there. It has to go there. We have to figure out the transit. We have to do the flood control. We have to build key green infrastructure. But to me, that is going to happen. Um, I've had meetings in Ottawa and with Minister Zohi was here not too long ago and we had a nice walking tour of the waterfront. He's a wonderful fellow and you know, did some wonderful work in, in Edmonton. But it's resonating. When I meet with the MPPs, when I meet with the MPs, when I talk to the ministers, I meet with the ministry, it's not a long conversation about what needs to happen and why it's so important. And then I'd kind of salt it and pepper it with the urgency that the infrastructure that we'll be putting in in the Portlands will support the vertical buildings that have to achieve this carbon reduction and create this new livability and the new way of, of, of creating jobs and living and working and all that. So it's very present. It's very near. It's actually tomorrow. Today is tomorrow. And, and the idea that 35 years is, is going to go pretty quickly, the, you know, we have one generation, as the chairman of Arup uh, wrote in an article in The Guardian, you know, said, we have one generation. We're it. We're, we're going to figure this out or we're not going to figure it out. And it's going to happen at the waterfront. So given, given the urgency that you've absolutely correctly identified, given the fact that we are living through a rare moment in this country, um, so different from the hysteria south of the border <laughs> in, my, in my former country, um, where the stars are relatively aligned. Yep. In Ottawa, at Queen's Park, at the city of Toronto, uh, we have leadership that seems to be saying the right things, that is interested in collaborating. Um, as you said, it goes right down to your board level. How do you, as the leader of a large organization, with partners deal with a reality that I think we all would acknowledge, and that is in our day-to-day -day practices, in all the departments and portions of departments and the agencies and all of the split jurisdictions that we have, a lot of the world is just churning along on automatic pilot, and we're not fully achieving the potential of that great convergence model that you're describing. How, how do you actually empower, inspire the staff, get people in your partner agencies 
to buy into this vision, to break through some of the barriers, right. so we, we can actually, in, a, in the timely fashion that you're describing, so we can actually get there. How, how do we, I mean, you're talking about 2.0, it's what we're doing now may be very good, it's not good enough. How right. do we get to that next level? That's a, that's a terrific question. Um, you know, it, 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 it's almost the kind of Buddhist, you know, the journey starts with one step, and. And you, and you need to learn that there is power in the vision. Because if you think about it, um, any of you who you know, design buildings or plan districts or build large construction projects, you know, I, I once tried to estimate how many decisions go into building a building. And I, you know, I just wondered, you know, during the early schematics and then during the financing discussions and then trying to get an entitlement and then actually figuring out the marketing and the, all the financing. And you know, it's 10,000 decisions for a building. Maybe it's eight, maybe it's 11, I don't know, but it's, it's thousands of decisions. So what guides those decisions? What actually informs when you have to pick, are you gonna use this material or that material? Or is, is you know, Bruce, are you gonna use the dark gray or the black brick? Right, or that was a joke, anyway. Um, you know, uh, He's coming out of his, his dark gray period, so this is okay. I, I can make a joke. Uh, um, you know, are you, are you going to do the ground lease or do the for sale? Are you going to, in the negotiation on, on you know, chapter 37, section 37, excuse me, are you going to go for this or that? I mean, what informs all those decisions? And if you have this powerful vision, it really will, in fact, guide um, how that happens. So here's an experience when my last kind of major development uh, was with the University of California at Davis, which is on your way to Sacramento from San Francisco. It's a large campus. It, it was the ag campus, so they had a lot of land for research agriculture. It's, it's the number one school of agriculture in the United States, and some say in the world. It's the number one veterinary science uh, school in the United States. It's number one, uh, number two now in, in biosciences with Harvard. I mean, fantastic school. And they wanted to be number one in environmental sciences. And, and so they did a national competition for a developer to develop 220 acres. And they didn't start by saying, we want net zero energy. They just said, we want to create the campus of the future. We want to have faculty, students, and staff living there. We want to have a community college you know, uh, as part of a university. Very interesting. And I understand here, universities, colleges, same kind of kind of connections. And uh, it started with conversations. We, got, we won, and we beat out the big guys. We beat out Forest City, Lincoln Properties, the big student housing. Be and I said, why'd you pick us? They said, well, A, you listened, you understood our goals, and we felt that together we could partner to achieve something that would achieve our aspiration of, some of this new campus of the 21st century. So I'm fast forwarding, I won't go through this was 10 years ago. And we ended up building the first net zero energy community in the United States that's built with private financing. It's on a ground lease. And we were able to do that because the vision came out of this broad set of conversations with the professors, with the engineers. We did a, a call for ideas on new technologies, new light bulbs, new everything, new products. We, we met with the finance people and tried to invent New, new forms of financing. Uh, we got grants from the California who were looking for new models and brought in industry as part of that discussion. And out of that came this, 
aspiration. So the vision guided what probably at that point were like 25,000 decisions of that vision framing every day, every day, every day. Well, do we do this or do we do that or do we do this? Well, you know what? This one has the possibility to get us where we need to go. So I believe that is an example that if we can articulate clearly, starting with you, with the policymakers, with the financial uh, partners, uh, with the city planning department, with our counselors, with the elected officials, that this idea of addressing 21st century neighborhoods of creating jobs and, and entrepreneurs where people can actually create new ideas and new jobs and come together, where we can build in a way that we haven't built before, and we can engage this incredibly diverse community. I mean, think about if, with all those decisions that we're all gonna be making now, you take the diversity of Toronto, which, parenthetically, my favorite times of the day are riding the subway to work and back, because I love seeing this on the subway. I mean, it blows my mind, I love it. But if you take all those wonderful diverse backgrounds and cultures and identity and, and history and, and understanding of how we work together as human beings, and you broaden that out and get them involved with this discussion about this 21st century, I mean, nobody else can do that but here in Toronto. We have the advantage of, of, of openness and connectedness and the ability to bring people together. That will create this new, incredibly different thing, and everybody in the world's gonna wanna know, how did you do that? How did you bring people together to inform the vision and to guide these thousands and thousands of decisions that will result in our, in this new village, in this new district, this new downtown. So you've, you've really anticipated what I wanted to ask you next, which is how do we take this extraordinary transformation, this ferment on the waterfront, which we're just starting to barely see yeah. as the pieces come into play, as we see the wave decks connected to the transformed Queen's Key, as we see East, uh, East Bayfront starting to come into existence, the Canary District. It, it, we're just at the early stages of people to, starting to understand this. How do we parlay that experience in, back into the larger city? Make it meaningful for the larger city and make Torontonians in a city that has recently suffered the ravages of wedge politics as a result of amalgamation, of a real sense of them and us, of, you know, that's just for those folks, that's not for me, because right. obviously your funders your three sources of funding depend on their constituents believing that they have a stake in these outcomes right. to keep up the level of funding. How do you make this waterfront project something that belongs to everybody? Right. So, you know, the, you know where to start in that? In that now, I think right now um, you all are aware of the waterfront because this is your profession and you're interested in in the city. But for many, many people who live in the GTA, unless you work or live or have some connection, you go to the Jays games or you know, you're a Raptor fan or whatever, um, you know, the waterfront's like, why would I come to downtown? I mean, you know, if the Pan Am games, you would. But I think we have the job to broaden and deepen the connection of everybody in the GTA to waterfront. 
Because if you think about it, we were discussing this at dinner the other night, um, you know, everyone loves their neighborhood with a passion. I mean, the city of neighborhoods, uh, you, know, uh, you know, you know exactly which store and which shopkeeper and who lives where and what's going on and, um, you know, very, very proud. But the reality is that every single one of you and everybody who lives here has another neighborhood that's theirs and that's the waterfront. It belongs to everyone. So actually, everyone here has two neighborhoods that is theirs. You own, each of you here own waterfront property because of the investments that have been made by the federal and provincial and, and the local government. In fact, I did some real quick math. If, if you live in Toronto, you, each of you own a square meter of the waterfront. So a um, uh, little plug during Luminato uh, this summer, uh, we're, we're trying to figure out if, if there's a way for people to come down and visit their waterfront. You know, come on, while you're going to Luminato, come and camp out and hang out in your waterfront property and see what it's gonna be like. So I don't know, we'll see. But, you know, I think that if people feel connected, so what can we do to make those kind of connections? How do we, this is a legacy project. This isn't just the 10 or 15. How do we involve the school children? How do we involve the universities? How do we engage corporations and others, uh, you know, tech or otherwise, to feel that the waterfront is this opportunity to get the conversations going? So once you've broadened and made that connection, then you can start to talk to the counselors and talk to Ottawa and talk to people and saying, we're having this great conversation about what this is gonna be, and people are engaged in it, and, and I think I have to give a plug to Jennifer Keys, Matt. I mean, she has gotten planning to be cool, you know, to have people talking about planning and what's going on, and I think there's something on your chairs about the, the, you know, her report from 2015, what planning's doing. It's extraordinary what's going on city, and now we have to include the waterfront in that discussion. And the other part of it, Ken, we can't, the, the scale of the waterfront is so huge that even with the investments by the three governments in the flood control, in the transit, and, and on some of the infra key infrastructure, it will require huge amounts of private capital uh, and philanthropic capital and pension monies to come there to leverage that. So to me, that will start to change the dynamic a bit because we can't just rely on a more typical kind of you know, crown corporation model where the government funds 100% of the project. That's not gonna work. So these are, there's some new models for us, to, and, and I'm sure you've all been looking at the Under the Gardener, you know, the excitement project that you're, you're very involved with with Will and Judy Matthews. And I've, it's been interesting being at meetings for that and, and, and working with the city folks and our team to look at how bringing that outside interest, that outside investment is starting to already say, well, why can't we do that? Why can't we try this? So that helps when you bring that other financial capital. And of course, all of you know the golden rule, right? He who hath the gold makes the rules. So you know, here we're bringing the gold from the Matthews to be you know, very clear about it. And that's helping to frame what the under the gardener could become. And it's getting other people interested and you know, to, to, to hopefully match and exceed that, that, those funds. So I see it as a, uh, a design imperative, it's a messaging issue, it's a policy question, how do we change some policies that will allow the waterfront to go into realms where right now the financial model may not work, it's a policy issue, um, new forms of partnerships that we don't have. Um, we really have to reinvent the, all that around these decisions that will allow us to, to make this happen. So I'm starting that obviously within our, um, 
uh, our organization. And so far, the staff's letting me, giving me some rope <laughs> to, to have that discussion. And we're, we're doing some interesting discussions. We'll involve the board with that. And I think by um, you know, the summer, early fall, um, you, you will all be hearing much, much more about how do we engage more people, how do we engage you, how do we involve more people, and obviously, hopefully, the rollout of the, of the government investments. I don't know if I'm supposed to do this, but I'm, I'm going to You're going to do it anyway. I'm going to pay you a compliment. Um, I've been observing your learning curve on all this since before you had the job and, you know, in the short time that you've been here, and you're just absorbing everything like a sponge. But I, I think the most significant thing that, in the way you're starting to talk about this, the Toronto waterfront is a profoundly Canadian project. The underlying values of social equity, of access for all, of doing this in a way, in the way you were just describing, that benefits the whole population, as opposed to some jewel which may be incredibly successful in its own terms, but is disconnected from the rest of society. And I, I think that seeing you embrace that gives me a lot of confidence in where we're going. So I, I want to ask you one last question, and then I'm going to throw it open to other people. Um, you've said to me that this move to Toronto is not a stepping stone in your career, but this is a kind of career combination. So if, if you look out five, 10 years, 15 years from now, whatever time frame you want to pick, how would you imagine success if, if, you're, if you achieve your goals on the waterfront as you're starting to understand them? What would it look like? What would it feel like? You know, I, I, I love science fiction movies, and you know, I love to go to Star Trek and Star Wars, and, and uh, you know, I love to see what these young kids are coming up with. And if you remember, there was a, a thing in Star Wars one or two movies ago where Starfleet Command is right on Christie Field in, in San Francisco, right at the foot of the waterfront, and there are these really wacky, cool vertical buildings and you know, lots of vertical green, and you know, it's, it's, it's a different form of what city is. I, I think that uh, the success of the waterfront will be that um, Canadians uh, will bring the best they have, the best technology, the best design, um, and that that will in turn relate to the other metro areas in the world um, that will learn from Canada um, and will learn about the process and the design and how we found a way to forge these partnerships in a Canadian way and, and to broaden that conversation and to and remain true to the vision, to include people, um, and, and, and in a way to uh, create this identity that I think, you know, me as a, someone from North America, uh, you know, feel about Canadians that, that, again, as I started out saying about the openness, the, the connection, the, the, the thought, and, and I just, would hope that it also will bring out that urgency and will bring out the entrepreneurship and the ability to you know, take a little bit of risks. Um, again, for me, as I look at it, um, what a great place to take risk as an entrepreneur here and to try some things because you have fantastic quality education, you have the healthcare uh, that's the envy of, of everybody, 
and so you know you have a little bit of that that safety net for your family. So it'll say, hey, let's try something that's a little bit outside the box. Let's try this new approach. Um, and um, I, I really want to welcome people to try, you know, you know, email me or email someone in at Waterfront Toronto or someone on the board saying, hey, I just saw something fantastic. Um, let's check it out. Here's here's something we might want to think about. How do we adapt that those ideas to to Canada, to our climate, um, and into our culture? So. I think it's continuing that exchange. Uh, and for me, I, I don't have the physical side because that needs to be derived from, from the vision. Um, I, I will tell you that with 150,000 coming to the GTA and with the market as it is um, and with the discussions that I'm having with some developers, uh, things are going to happen much more quickly than I think any of us realize that uh, as soon as we can announce the, the, the government in investments, it will unlock the inherent value of the waterfront and the proximity to downtown and, and allow us to begin to think about things very you know, holistically, uh, but yet get on with some key projects. And that will then keep amping up as we invent some new ideas, then we'll go to the next level, the next level, and we'll just keep amping it up. So I think it's... Uh, it's a combination of the conversation, keep keeping open to the new ideas, having the spirit of entrepreneurship and testing, and you know uh, I, I think that we need to do more of these demonstration projects to show what what we can do and to make it the new industry standard for the rest of Toronto. Because if we can show some new ways of of approaching these urban problems of transit, of mixed income housing, of uh, public realm, those then will be adapted for the rest of the GTA and the rest of the province and the rest of Canada. So this is our place to test, to be the test bed, if you will. It's a great note to end on. Yeah. I thank you for that. But now let's okay. throw it open to the... Uh... So I have some questions for you. Do you want to oh, yeah, read I'll, them? I'll re yeah, I should read them out. <laughs> what thoughts do you have about the possible Expo 2025 project in the Portlands? Would it be good for Toronto? So how many of you have been to a World's Fair? I mean, did you go to Vancouver or did you go to one of the other ones? So a, hand, a sprinkling. Um, it's intriguing to think about a World's Fair in a 21st century social media type world, and we can learn about different countries or see the latest technology or see the products of countries, but it's not the same as actually being there, as we know. And uh, I remember talking to Councillor Wong Tam, and I asked her that she, you know, coming from Asia, and she said going to Vancouver for the World's Fair was the first time that she really identified and felt like a Canadian, and that experience really made her, um, you know, so proud about being a Canadian and being at the, the Vancouver World's Fair. So I think there are a couple of issues there. I mean, on the one hand, clearly it galvanizes the decision-making model and accelerates that. And I want to be sure, and what the Secretary General said when he was here um, a few weeks ago was the reason to do the World's Fair is to have a legacy that goes far beyond the actual you know, six months, eight months of the fair that will extend beyond uh, for the future of Toronto. So, if we can figure out a way to do this 21st century 
district and infrastructure and place in a Canadian specific way that will be the legacy and that somehow that the World's Fair is part of that, then I think that's a great conversation to have. Um, the problem is that the, the timing, you know, if they're talking 2025, um, that's kind of tomorrow uh, for in infrastructure terms, given what we have to get done. So it would mean some pretty quick decisions. It would mean how do we work together with the sponsors? How does Waterfront and others deliver the infrastructure and get it to the point where um, we're, we're not being expedient? Because we all know when you have that kind of tough schedule, you gotta, you know, work to the schedule. Um, and, and so I'm, we are open, uh, the board is officially neutral. Uh, we welcome, you know, if the government, federal government makes that decision and the committee, then we will work hand in hand and be a partner to help deliver the infrastructure so that the, the pavilions and such would happen. Um, so at this point, it's more of a, we're, we're ready and, and willing and capable to, to be a partner with whomever makes that decision. You know, on the other hand, having uh, a really aggressive schedule, as I'm learning with the project under Gardner, can be uh, very useful. Um, next question, what parallels do you see between the San Francisco and Toronto waterfronts? What, what might we learn from San Francisco? Right. So one distinction I'd make is, um, uh, you know, when I look at Ontario Place, and um, I look at, um, you know, uh, is it Ziedler? Did I say it right? Zeidler. Zeidler, Zeidler. Zeidler, the pods. And, you know, that was the place. You know, many of you, I've talked to folks that growing up in Toronto, that was where you went. That's where you hung out as a teenager and the IMAX theater. And, you know, there was this destination to come down to the waterfront. Very exciting. Uh, harbor, harbor front, you know, same kind of vibe. You know, that's where you go and you hang out. You need key destinations in addition to creating great neighborhoods. And I think that we need to look at what are the other possibilities of destinations like they've done in the waterfront. And obviously you have, you've all been there to Garadilly Square and there's the ferry terminal and the farmer's market, but now it's extended out because the transit got extended where you have the ballpark, you have uh, the Exploratorium, great kind of hands-on science museum right on the waterfront. Um, you have, uh, you know, some great new neighborhoods that are, that are uh, dog patch, it's kind of the hot new neighborhood. There. And so the waterfront is transmuting, and there's also a brand new project, Hunter's Point, Hunter's View, which uh, is 12,000 units of housing, um, and a third of that will be uh, affordable. So great opportunities in the waterfront. But again, the transit, the, uh, the public realm, uh, doing it in a way that's very specific to San Francisco, knitting it back, the connections to the neighborhood, what you've been saying about Under the Gardener, uh, I think all those lessons are very present in, in the waterfront in San Francisco. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously one difference, uh, not to make the, the major point, but, you know, we had an earthquake and that brought down our version of the Gardner Highway, the Embarcadero, came down. I do not, I want this on record, I do not wish an earthquake on Toronto um, to, to make that happen. The, the decision's been made. You know, the Gardner's going to be uh, reconfigured on the hybrid. And you know we will figure it out how to make the connections to the waterfront. I was going to ask you about that, but you've deftly I deftly pushed that circumvented aside. and preempted you. Yeah, you did. <laughs> um, this this is a good one. Um, talk a little bit about public-private models for public space. Not only the creation of public space, but the maintenance and right. stewardship of public space. Um, so whoever asked that question, bless you. Um, 
this is front and center for us right now. Um, with the Under the Gardener, the Matthews in their behest, uh, and I think this is very Machiavellian of them, uh, to say none of that money can be used for overhead maintenance. Because normally, at least in the States, if somebody gave a behest, you would take about two-thirds of the money and use that for capital, and one-third would go to um, overhead maintenance programming, whatever, because you'd invest that money, right? Um, but they said, no, you can't do that. So it's begged the question, not just for the under the gardener, but for the rest of the waterfront, how do we maintain the high quality of, of the maintenance, the overhead, the care, the refurbishment, the programming, all of that, which is in, in inherent in, in creating the waterfront. Um, and so we've just brought on a, a consulting firm from New York HRNA, um, who some of you know, they're kind of an economics firm, but they have a lot of experience uh, throughout the, the country, uh, both in Canada and the US, uh, of how to bring these partnerships so that the, the public realm will be, in a sense, adopted by the folks who work and live uh, there. And there are new mo models of creating the revenues that obviously you need to work in partnership with the city um, as well, but it's an enhanced level of care that I think the mayor, when I've spoke to him, is very much looking forward to seeing what we can come up with uh, both on Under the Gardeners and a, as an example of how we take that to the rest of the waterfront. Okay, next, uh, aside from Toronto, what are your other favorite waterfronts in the world? Um, well, I'm, I, I, you know, Bruce Kuhrbauer keeps telling me I've got to get, get to Copenhagen and to see what they've done there, and obviously Amsterdam, and, and there are, you know, Hamburg, and there are a few other just incredible exemplars uh, of the waterfront. I, I was very lucky I got to work on the waterfront in Washington, D.C. the last few years that's now under construction a private developer uh, for 28 acres to rebuild literally the waterfront wall, the promenade, uh, right down from LaFont Plaza, two transit stops. And so, you know, working at that level, and I think what we came up with, it's a riverfront, but uh, I think that'll be kind of exciting. I, I would hope that it will be exciting. Um, and, uh, you know, for me, what Mayor Bloomberg has done in New York and extending the waterfront all along Manhattan and in Brooklyn and the work that Michael Van Volkenberg, who's working on our project here, has done in New York is just extraordinary, both in terms of uh, enhancing the neighborhoods that are immediately adjacent, creating new outlets for a densifying city, but also creating destinations um, for people to come to the waterfront, even if they don't live in Manhattan or in Brooklyn, because they want to just be part of that experience. So. I think that, for me, that energy, that excitement uh, that we see there. Um, I, I think what I'd want to say also about the waterfront Toronto, it, it becomes really important that while we're building you know, pretty massive, that we also get the fine grain. And, and one of the, some of the greatest spots here are those, you know, the little alleys and when you're in Yorkville and, and other spots, that intimacy. Um, how do we maintain that smaller scale while we're also doing these pretty big chunks of development. So I'll be looking to the Design Review Board and to Chris and others for how do we find this kind of new intersection that's very walkable, that's very humane, that has that you know, three, four, five, six-story kind of scale, but also allows for the densities that we really should be building. That's going to be a really interesting play mm -hmm. down at the waterfront. So on, on, in the spirit of learning from each other and seeing what's happening elsewhere. I'm going to make a little 
announcement about the undergardener, which I think is pretty interesting. The folks who created the High Line and who are currently uh, managing it have decided to call together people from 15 leading edge projects around the world that are dealing with found spaces like the undergardener, and Toronto is one of them. So that, uh, with the idea that we can form a kind of association and share best practices, learning experiences, and so on. So, and that's that's fantastic because I think that'll be you know we're in that league. I do want to say, in case any of you don't have plans this weekend, um, there's going to be a uh, an event happening down at the waterfront. Um, the sugar shack. And the sugar shack. Yeah. And uh, you know how do you have fun in the waterfront? You know in the winter, and uh, there'll be an event there, and uh, lots of you know food and 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 music, etc. And uh, I, I have to tell you the reason, not, I, I really have to come clean. Uh, I hope you're enjoying the San Francisco winter weather. Um, the, the, today, you know, I felt totally at home. I didn't have a coat on, you know, it's great. It's in my contract that if I came, I had to bring San Francisco winter weather yeah. to the waterfront. So you're welcome. And, you know, I hope you enjoy it for the time being. Um, but anyway, I, I just have to say that I'm really, really uh, pleased as are my family to to be, become you know, a Torontonian and to uh, be part of this conversation and to, and to learn from each of you. And I want to learn more about the history. And, um, you know, but I, I really feel, as you said earlier on, Ken, the alignment, the moment, the, uh, the fact that our, our, our government leaders are, are saying the same thing, that we have opportunity to create these new models, that you know, we have this fantastic design and development community here that uh, you know, this is right in front of us, and um, I'm going to you know do everything to you know pull everybody together here that we can, and the waterfront you know Toronto organization can become that you know that that we will look back and say this was that moment that we seized that opportunity, and I'm just I'm just you know I'm so glad I'm here to do help with that. So last question, and I just get to read them. I don't necessarily agree <laughs> with them, but. Um, editorial comment. A little editorial I just want it to be clear. Um, we are not a quote-unquote world-class city yet. How do you think the waterfront plan can facilitate this goal? Um, you know, uh, uh, evaluations are in the eye of the beholder. And, you know, there are places of San Francisco that I could point to and I just get, it makes me apoplectic to see what happened and why did it happen. And, you know, it just, it just drives me crazy. Or I go back to Denver, you know, and looking back after, you know, 35 years of having been involved with Denver and seeing what happened along the, the Platte Valley and, you know, some things that just, you know, make me incensed that, you know, we either didn't get it right or that somebody didn't follow the plan. And, you know, it's, it's, it's family, right? You know, you're, you guys are part of the family and you know, you know, well, we should have done that, we should have done that. I, and I have to tell you, as a, you know, all of, you know, 42 days or whatever long I've been here, um, I, I really believe that there are elements of the world class of the, uh, of what's happening that we will be in that first rank. And I think that we have snippets. And I, you know, when I look at the West Donlands, it, I mean, just what happened in such a short period and when the fences come down and when the new people start moving in and you start to see what I, what I believe we'll all go back there together, um, I mean, you're going to start nodding your head saying, okay, here's a demonstration of what will be happening 
in you know, North Keating and Keyside and the rest of the Portlands. And so I, I believe we are on the path. We are on our way. And you know, when we will come together and say, OK, now we're officially world class. Now we've officially stamped it. It'll be interesting when we decide that we're in that, in that league or not. Um, you know, I, I really believe that um, we have, we can learn from others, um, but we have the time to, because of the, um, the climate change issue and the urgency of that, I think that will accelerate what we have to do. And I believe that that urgency will cause each of us to try and push a little bit faster, a little further, um, to try and achieve something that uh, we will be, you know, looked at around the world as, wow, what happened here in Toronto is really something special. So I, I think another way of saying that is the journey is actually much more fun than <laughs> getting to the destination. And I think we all want to thank you for bringing your vast experience, your intelligence, your enthusiasm, your desire to do something terrific on our waterfront to our city. So welcome, and I'm sure everybody uh, looks forward to uh, working closely with you. Thank you, Will. Thank you. Thank you. Just a few more remarks before we uh, close for the evening. I'm Emma West from Bousfields. I'm on the management committee of ULI Toronto, one of the co-chairs of the Women's Leadership Initiative. And I'm Tony Rossi, the divisional president of uh, real estate and lending at Infrastructure Ontario. Uh, I'm also on the management committee of ULI and a co-chair of the WLI Initiative. And we would like to, on behalf of the management committee and the advisory board of ULI Toronto, thank both of our guests, Will Fleissig and Ken Greenberg, for their inspiring and informative uh, conversation. I think it's been valuable for all of us here to understand what the future direction of Waterfront Toronto is and what our new uh, leader of that organization is going to bring to uh, the future of that group. We've also had the privilege of um, having Ken Greenberg lead the conversation, one of our great city builders as well as Will. So we thank them both. I think we said it earlier, none of these events could really happen without our event sponsors, so we really need to do another shout out to our event sponsors and uh, bear with me with while I highlight each and every one of them because it's important. So Bennett Jones, Bousfields, KPMB Architects, Ledcore Group, Pinnacle International, TD Commercial Bank, and then the reception sponsor tonight's uh, Baker Real Estate and Mankeys. Um, I also want to flag very briefly from a housekeeping perspective that we have some uh, upcoming events uh, at ULI and a very big one in the near future on April the 7th is our annual Meet the Chiefs. So if you haven't gotten your ticket yet, uh, please do so. They are going fast and furious. Uh, we know that that's going to be a fantastic event to come. Uh, but also finally, you know, as co-chairs of the ULI Women's Leadership Initiative, uh, we thought it was very important that we couldn't leave tonight without actually marking the day of uh, International uh, 
Women's Day. So both Emma and I are very pleased to be co-chairs there. And many of you uh, have been involved or were at a part of our launch for the She With He initiative. So for those that have not been there, uh, on many of the uh, chairs, you will see this postcard. And the She With He initiative was launched this year by our WLI group. It's fashioned after the United Nations, He For She, and it really does speak to living in not just uh, a city like Toronto where diversity, back to what you said, Will, and, and Ken, diversity is our strength, but also there's still opportunity for parity for women within the real estate and development industry specifically and across the board. So we uh, encourage you to take a look at that and to go on uh, to the website and actually take the pledge uh, and, and work with us. And one more thing, if you're looking to celebrate International Women's Day, other than taking the pledge for She With He, is that our nominations are currently open for our Women's Leadership Initiative Championship Team. And for those of you who aren't aware of what the championship team is, it's a, a, a way for us to highlight or spotlight some of the incredible women in the real estate and development industry, and we have over 100 members on the championship team now. Many of you are in the room. And we are open for nominations for other incredible women within the industry. Nominations close March 31st. So again, if you want to celebrate International Women's Day, feel free to sign the pledge or nominate an incredible, inspiring woman within the industry. So thank you much again. Thank you very much again for um, coming out. And thanks to our speakers as well. Have a great evening, everyone.